All right. Hey, um, so here, I want to tell you guys something about myself. The sermon is starting now, whether there's ringing or not. Um, I'm going to tell you guys something about myself. I'm really bad with song lyrics. I'm really bad with song lyrics. Like, I, I just hear uh, sounds, and I fill in the blank. Like, I make up what words are being said. And it, it's, it's just, it's really bad. So often, I just go, this is what it's said, and this is what I sing, and then my wife will correct me. And so, very often, what happens is I change the lyrics so badly, it changes the meaning of, like, the whole song, Okay. Uh, and one of these songs that I listened to growing up, so I don't know if you're as Christian as me, but I grew up listening to Audio Adrenaline, which I think is still a band or something, but it's not the real Audio Adrenaline. It is a farce of musical capitalism. But uh, anyways, I listened to this band, Audio Adrenaline, and they had this song called Some Kind of Zombie, okay? Now, this song called Some Kind of Zombie, it was on an album called Some Kind of Zombie, okay? And uh, then when I would listen to that song and when they would sing the chorus that clearly was saying some kind of zombie over and over and over again, I thought it was saying some kind of found A. Okay, look what I thought was happening. I thought they were shortening the word foundation and just saying some kind of found A, and I thought the whole song was about having some kind of foundation in Christ, okay? That's not what the song's about. It's about being dead to your sin, and I don't know, there's a lot of zombie stuff that I don't know why it's in the song, but uh, to this day. But just that one song lyric changed the whole meaning of the song for me, and it, I wish I could say this is a rare occurrence for me, but it happens all of the time, okay? It is constantly happening where I'm, oh, that's not what that song is saying. Today, in John chapter 20, we are going to see the resurrected Jesus. And the thing about the resurrection is it changes everything. Everything the disciples thought they knew about Jesus, the resurrection shows they didn't quite know it like they thought they did. The resurrection shows them that Jesus was doing something far more powerful, far more different than what any of them expected. The resurrection changes everything. Just like one song lyric changes the whole song for me, the resurrection changes everything that Jesus did in the disciples' eyes, it all of a sudden becomes clear. It all of a sudden becomes far more powerful than they realized. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to hop into John chapter 20. We're going to read the first 18 verses today. And we're going to just go through these verses together. We could really just spend the whole Sunday just looking at this, these two passages and just looking at the resurrected Jesus. And I could just say, go home and think about the resurrected Jesus, and that would be enough. But uh, because uh, you guys would throw stones at me if I did it that way, uh, we're going to pull three things from these passages, three things that the resurrection changed for the disciples. Three things, that, what, three things that we get to see changed uh, fundamentally for the disciples and, and their own walk. And those three things also change for us when we see the resurrection as well. Okay, so let's hop into it. I'm going to take a quick drink of water, but let's hop into it. If you want, turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you ever need a Bible, we have Bibles set up near the side doors when you come in. And we encourage you guys to grab them and follow along. Although the font in those Bibles is like four, so you might not 
um, be able to see it. So let's turn to John chapter 20 to, to recap you guys where we've been at. Last week, we saw uh, Jesus buried in the tomb, put in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And now we're going to see him out of the tomb. So let's just go through these passages together before we specifically see how the resurrection changes so much. Uh, we'll break this up. I won't read it all at once, okay? So let's start with the first four verses. Uh, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, let's stop there for now. Okay, so here's kind of how it's pieced together if you bring all the Gospels together and see what happens. It seems that Mary Magdalene and other women went to the tomb, possibly to... Uh, re-anoint Jesus' body with spices and oils, possibly because now that Pat, the big parts of Passover were over, maybe they wanted to go back and they were okay becoming unclean at this point by t touching a dead body. And so uh, they, they go back and they even, I think in that moment, see some angels. Uh, most of the women get afraid and look down because of how bright the angels are. And then it seems that Mary Magdalene runs over to Peter and the other disciple, as it's put here, and tells them about what happens, okay? Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Gospel of John, it, it traditionally, historically, most uh, theologians, most uh, academics, maybe that's not the right way to say it, think that John, the disciple, is the one who wrote uh, this book of the Bible. But in theological academia, there's a little bit of debate. They're not always sure about who wrote uh, the Gospel of John. I think it was John, but here's what I do know. Whoever beat Peter in the race, that's who wrote this book, okay? Whoever it was that beat Peter in the race, that's who wrote this book, which there's a lot of evidence that that was probably John. The reason I know that whoever beat Peter in the race is the one who wrote this book is because I relish beating my best friend, Yvonne, in foot races to this day. In fact, put up the picture. Put up the picture. <laughs> this was October. This was just a few months ago. This was that guy who's far behind me as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this was his bachelor party. I forced him to get into a race with me at his bachelor party to gain my respect and so that I would allow him to get married. And so he obviously did not gain my respect. I beat him, okay? Some other things about my friend Yvonne. He runs marathons, okay? All right? Also, I just want you to compare. Just look at the BMI on the front guy and look at the BMI on the back. Pretty different, okay? But I still can smoke him. I got feet, okay? So... This is, this is how I know whoever beat Simon Peter in that race wrote the Gospel of John. And there's a lot of evidence that was, it was John. So you can take the picture down. Now, this, that was the dumbest illustration I've ever done. Uh, I'm sorry. I understand if you leave the church. It, that makes sense to me. But, hey, I wanted you guys to know your, your pastor can outrun some people. Um, so that's who wrote. Uh, so they run. John outpaces Peter, gets to the tomb first, and Peter comes behind. Let's see what happens ne next. Let's read verses 5 through 10. And stooping to look in, so John stooped to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. So John out, out uh, runs Peter, he gets to the tomb, he stoops down, he kind of looks in, but he's, he's not going in to the tomb yet. Peter, classic Peter, just brazenly kind of goes in, right? And he probably said, we said first to the tomb, boy, and, like, and, and goes in there. And, uh, and, and they, they notice that the, that the linen cloths, the, the grave clothes, the grave cloths that Jesus was wrapped in, they're just sitting there. Some of them are even folded up. Now, it's important to note that the last time they saw a resurrection was with Lazarus, right? And Lazarus, he came out of the tomb wearing his grave clothes. But in this scene, what they see is the grave cloths are folded up. They are still in the tomb. And John, the other disciple, he sees the cloths. He sees them there. And that's enough for him to believe. John just sees the cloths lying there, in there, and all of a sudden he believes. This theme of belief that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, all of a sudden this is the moment that John gets it, even though it says that he didn't quite understand the Bible. He didn't understand the Scriptures. He didn't understand what is our Old Testament and how it talks about the resurrection of Jesus, but he all of a sudden gets it. And so I imagine they probably had some kind of conversation about what must have happened, and then they go home. All right, let's go into verse 11. But Mary, okay, let's stop there really quick, all right? Um, but Mary, so now we're going to get into this conversation with Mary Magdalene and the resurrected Jesus. And we've been talking about Mary Magdalene a good amount here. She's, she's shown up, she showed up at the cross, she's showing up here. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to just kind of go, okay, who is Mary Magdalene? What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Who is she, okay? So the first thing we know about Mary Magdalene, the first couple things, really the bulk of what we hear about Mary Magdalene comes from Luke chapter 8, okay? So Luke chapter 8 is where you can find some details about Mary Magdalene. Uh, what, it, what Luke chapter 8 tells us about Mary Magdalene is she was on the team of women who were financially supporting Jesus in his ministry, okay? So Luke chapter 8 notes that there's this group of women who financially supported Jesus' ministry, okay? So, just fun fact, women were the breadwinners for Jesus, okay? So just kind of interesting. Uh, that one's for free, all right? And so you can read into that however you want. And so there is Mary Magdalene helping support Jesus' ministry. What Luke 8 also tells us about Mary Magdalene is that she had had seven demons inside of her. She had seven demons inside of her, and Jesus had freed her from those. He had cast those demons out of her. And so what we know about Mary is she's very dedicated to Jesus. She's been following him around probably ever since he cast these demons out, out of her. Now, the next thing we know about Mary, it comes from her name, and it comes from a very strong tradition in church history and church tradition. It's this, is, is her name, Magdalene, or Magdalena, or however, uh, whatever is the right way to say it in uh, Aramaic or Hebrew, 
that's, a, that's a place. That was a place off the, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and it was kind of like a resort town. It was kind of like where the rich people would go to take vacation in that region, and it was kind of just known for, like, debauchery, and it was in particularly known for uh, that th- th- there were prostitutes there. And there's a strong tradition in church history that Mary Magdalene was a former prostitute. And so the fact that they even call her Mary Magdalene in that time and in that place, it, it probably is not just because that's where she's from. It's probably because she embodies that place. And so I think it was probably a way for people to say, hey, you're a prostitute. You're a former prostitute, whatever they would say. And, that, and, and that's kind of why uh, she has this title, Mary Magdalene, uh, throughout her time uh, on, on earth, on, unfortunately. And so, so what we know about Mary is she's very dedicated to Jesus, followed him around. She uh, had seven demons in her at some point. Uh, and then she, she's more than likely a, a former prostitute. And it's this Mary who comes back to the tomb wanting to find out what happened. I think she's thinking to the body of Jesus, and she's going to find so much more. So let's hop back into it. Mary Magdalene, verse 11, we'll go through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Okay, let's pause there for a minute. So Mary comes back to the tomb. It seems Peter and John, they're gone. She stoops to look in, and there's two angels there, and she's just crying, just looking around. Now, a lot of times Mary Magdalene, she kind of gets depicted as, like, hysterical in this passage. Like she's crying so hard she doesn't even notice the angels. She's crying so hard she doesn't even notice Jesus. We'll see in a couple minute, minutes here. And, and so she gets depicted as just hysterical. Now, I think she's grieving uh, Jesus' death. I, she, I think she's probably also grieving the fact that I think what she thinks is going on is that some people took his body out to dishonor or took his body out to throw it in the pile of bodies like uh, we saw or we talked about the last week even. And so she stoops in, but then there's these two angels in there, one sitting at the head and one sitting at the feet of where Jesus was laying. And Mary doesn't freak out. This is how I know that Mary, it's not her hysteria, I don't think, that's causing her to not freak out from the angels. I think she's composed. The fact is, Mary used to have some demons inside of her. And so she looks in, she's, not, she's like, oh, some angels, some spiritual beings, whatever. And, and they're like, hey, why are you crying? What's going on? Usually people kind of get more freaked out. Uh, they usually don't just ignore us. And she goes, listen, they've taken my Lord. He's gone. She, I think she's grieving, but composed. She's not freaked out by some angels because she knows the name of seven demons that lived inside of her. And so uh, let's see what happens next. Verse 14. Having said this to the angel, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not 
know that it was Jesus. Now, there, there's a few things that could be happening here why she doesn't recognize Jesus. It does seem like Jesus almost um, in these resurrection moments, you see this on the road to Emmaus with these two different other disciples, the other followers of Jesus, where Jesus almost kind of conceals himself or doesn't show the fullness of who he is. That could be going on. It could be that Jesus' resurrected body is just so glorified and so different that she couldn't recognize him right away. Or it could be simply that she was just looking into a dark tomb and then she's looking out into sunlight and her eyes are still adjusting. It could be any of those things going on. But she doesn't recognize Jesus right away and she's still crying. And so verse 15, this is what Jesus says to her. Jesus said to her, woman, why, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you, you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Again, we, we kind of see Mary's composure. But Jesus, Jesus notices her crying, and Jesus goes, hey, why are you crying? I like to think of Jesus as playful. I think that Jesus might be saying, hey, who are you looking for? <laughs> like, you know, like trying to make it obvious to her that it, she's looking for him, and he's standing right there. And then Mary, who, who just wants to honor her Lord, she keeps her composure, thinks it's the gardener. She goes, sir, if you've taken the body, can you let me know? Can you let me know where it is? I'll take care of it. I'll take it away. If it's not supposed to be in this tomb, I will take care of the body. Could you let me know? And then verse 16 happens, which is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says this, Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The reason this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is you, you just see, at least I just see, the love flowing out of Jesus towards Mary. Jesus can simply just say her name in his voice and she can recognize that it's Jesus. I feel like every time I read this verse, every time I go through this passage, I can't help but feel like I hear the resurrected Jesus saying my own name to me to get me to recognize him. I love this verse. Jesus just goes, Mary, it's me. And all of a sudden she hears his voice, hears him, knows it's him, and we, we kind of piece together from the other gospels. She probably drops to his feet and clings tightly to his feet, and she calls him teacher, a common name that was used. But this one's even probably has a little bit more honor and edge to it. Great teacher, and she clings to his feet. And then Jesus Classically, Jesus, he never quite does what we expect him to do. And so verses 17 and 18, Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary clings to his feet. She's overjoyed. She's like, great teacher. And Jesus goes, hey, 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 don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Hey, let go. I'm, I'm not yet ascended to my father. I'm not yet gone totally. And in the meantime, I need you to go to my brothers. I need you to go to the disciples. I need you to go tell them what you've seen. Go tell them what's going on. 
Go proclaim my resurrection to them. And Mary goes and does that. She goes, I've seen the Lord, and he said this stuff to me, and Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. And so this is the, in John, this is how Jesus is resurrected. This is, these are the scenes that we get. This is from what John knows about the resurrection, what happened. And, and what we are going to see, what we even kind of can tell in this passage is the resurrection changes everything for them. The resurrection is not just like, oh yeah, totally, that makes sense. Like the resurrection changes everything for, for them. And so I want to talk about three things, three ways that the, the, the resurrection changes everything today. The first one is this. The first thing that the resurrection changes is, is John, the, the author, John, the other disciple, John could now believe just by looking at the grave cloths. John could now believe just by looking at the grave cloths. I don't know if you had this when you read through this, but if you look at 8 and 9, it's kind of confusing because it says in 8, John believes, and then nine, but they didn't understand the scriptures that talk about the resurrection. You're kind of like, that's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense. Surely they understood the resurrection. That's why John believes. But I think what John is trying to point out to us by showing that the moment he believed was not when he came to a correct understanding of scripture. The moment he believed, the moment when he believed in Jesus rightly was when he saw the grave cloths. That's when John believed in Jesus rightly. Again, we've talked about this time and time again, and I've already briefly mentioned it, but there's this theme throughout the Gospel of John of belief. John says he writes the book in in a few passages here uh, to get people to believe in Jesus. And what we've seen throughout the Gospel of John is that belief is not always just this flash in a pan moment, all of a sudden they totally believe in Jesus. But very often it's this kind of partial belief or it's this belief that grows over time or changes over time. But now in this moment, in John chapter 20, verse 8, John gets it. He actually believes. He actually believes the way he should be, despite his misunderstandings of Scripture. He actually, all of a sudden, finally gets it. The resurrection makes it so John can believe. Just the evidence of the resurrection, just the grave cloths lying there, make it so John can believe. The resurrection makes it so we can believe in Jesus the way he wants us to. The way we were made to. Listen, I I believe that the resurrection happened because the people that really didn't get it before Jesus resurrected, all of a sudden start really getting it. And even right here in this scene, they still don't quite get everything. But all of a sudden, John got it. He understood it. The resurrection, like listen to this, the resurrection is something unlike anything else Jesus has done in his ministry. It's unlike anything else he's done in his ministry. He did a lot of amazing things. 
He lived a perfect life. He restored the earth with all these miracles. He restored people with all these miracles. He taught well. But the resurrection is something unlike all of that because it gets a group of people that had a hard time believing and it makes it so that they can now believe. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the way. The resurrection shows that when he was saying all those things about himself, they're true. He didn't resurrect to prove that they're true, but the resurrection does prove that they're true. The power of the resurrection changed so much. You, in this room, you can believe in Jesus just by knowing what John saw. He saw the grave cloths folded up. He saw them empty. You can believe just by knowing that. Leslie Newbegin, we'll put this quote up here, but Leslie Newbegin wrote a commentary on John, and he talks about how John sees the resurrection. He says that John sees the resurrection as the enabling of the disciples to believe and so to be brought into a relationship with him whom death cannot destroy. In other words, to have life in his name. The resurrection makes it so you can have a relationship with him whom death cannot destroy. The resurrection makes it so you can believe fully, wholly, and totally. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection changes everything. It makes it so we can believe. All right, let's look at the second thing that the, that the resurrection changed. The second thing that the resurrection changed was this. It, it changed Mary's work as a disciple of Jesus. It changed her relationship, in a sense, with Jesus, but it changed her work as a disciple of Jesus. We see this as she clings to Jesus. She clings to Jesus instead of Jesus saying, yes, good job. Like, yes, I love, like, what? he goes, he, he wants to get her right back up. He's, he's saying, don't cling to me. And I think part of the way why he's saying that is he's saying, hey, you're not going to continue to follow me the way you used to follow me. The way you follow me is different now. He's not just a great rabbi. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the resurrected king of all creation who's never going to die. And so things have changed. So part of why Jesus is telling her not to cling to him anymore is because she's no longer going to follow Jesus around listening to him talk about the resurrection. She now is going to go out and proclaim the resurrection to others. Before her relationship with Jesus, before the clinging moment, it was walking around, listening to Jesus talk about the resurrection. After the resurrection moment, she's now to go out and proclaim the resurrection. Now, it's just something to note here. This is also just extra. But do you notice that Jesus chooses a lower-class woman who, whose witness account would not hold up in a court of law in that day, who probably had uh, a reputation of being mentally deranged because of the demons that were inside of her, or just the reputation of that, that she had had demons inside of her, a former prostitute woman to proclaim the resurrection first? 
That's who Jesus chooses to proclaim the resurrection first. And we could spend all day just talking about how God's grace and his power is seen in that. And not only that, his love and his dignity and value that he sees in Mary. He doesn't need some powerful person who all society would love to proclaim the resurrection. He picks Mary, who loves him deeply, to go and proclaim the resurrection. And so Jesus says to that Mary, don't cling to me. He's trying to let her know things are changing. He even, he even is trying to say, hey, look, I, I am going to ascend to my father. I am going to go away. So you don't have to cling to me yet because I'm going to go away in a fuller sense later. But I think he's also trying to say, Mary, your work has fundamentally changed now as a disciple of mine. You don't have to cling to me, listening to me teach about the resurrection. You now are to go proclaim the resurrection. So what that means for us is this, disciples. If you're in here and you go, I'm a disciple of Jesus, here's what it means. We don't just go around listening to Jesus talk about the resurrection. Let me say it this way, actually. We don't just go to church on Sunday listening to pastors talk about the resurrection. We don't just download podcasts of our favorite preachers proclaiming the resurrection. We actually are now called to go out and proclaim the resurrection. That's part of our calling as disciples of Jesus. We proclaim the resurrection. We don't just listen to people or our favorite people or our favorite voices talk about the resurrection. We go proclaim the resurrection and live out the resurrection. That's what we're called to, church. Imagine this. Imagine you have a coworker or a friend who comes to you and says, hey, do you really believe in that? God stuff? Do you really believe in Christianity? Are you really a Christian? Are you really religious? Like, and, ima- and usually our answers are, okay, what apologetics do I got? Or, yeah, totally. Like, uh, yeah, you know, like, and kind of get out of that conversation as fast as, as we can. But what if the next time somebody said something like that or asked us a question like that, what if our ro- response was really simple and it was just this, yeah, I think that Jesus guy resurrected. I think he was crucified, but I also think he came back to life. I think he really came back to life, and that changes everything. If there's a guy who predicts his death and predicts his resurrection and then pulls it off, I'm going to follow that guy. I'm going to listen to that guy. Like, what if that's what we, I just think that, I think that Jesus guy really came back to life. I really think he resurrected. What if we just even in those kinds of simple ways, in those kinds of simple conversations, became proclaimers of the resurrection? This is something that disciples of Jesus do. We don't just cling to his words about the resurrection. We become proclaimers of the resurrection. All right. The third thing, the third thing that the resurrection changes is this. Is it makes God your God and it makes Jesus' father your father. Did you notice there? Jesus comes out of the tomb and he says, hey, go proclaim to the disciples. And he says, my God is their God. My Father is their Father. There's something about the resurrection that makes that final and so. Right? Jesus is using the term God not because he's not the Son of God and he's not part of the triune God. He's using it because he wanted them to know, listen, the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, he's your God now. 
He's not far off. And Jesus doubles down. He goes, my father is your father. The resurrection makes it so that God is not far off anymore. He's close. He's so close that he's now a father. The resurrection has secured our adoption. The adoption papers into God's family have been signed. The legal work has been done. The resurrection has made it so. The God of the universe is not far off anymore because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's changed everything. Sin kept us far from God. Jesus' death and resurrection now bring us close to God. You get the intimacy that Jesus had, that Jesus has with his Father now. That's, that's, that's wild to me. When we cannot miss the aspect of the good news of the gospel that says his Father is now our Father. That is a big deal. If you want to know how big a deal it is, go back through the whole Gospel of John this week and read all of the moments where Jesus talks about his Father and he talks about the sort of relationship he has with his Father. Jesus is essentially saying in that moment, you have that now. The resurrection has brought that into your life in a new and powerful way. The resurrection has made that possible. Jesus' resurrection shows that there's a place in the universe where sin and death don't win. And Jesus wants to share that victory with all of us, not keep it to himself. And so Jesus wants to give us his resurrection, and that's why we even get his Father. The resurrection is a reminder that there is a way for us to be with God. Don't miss that. His Father is now our Father. The resurrection, it changes everything. It, it, it enables us to believe, unlike anything else that Jesus did, it changes our work and our mission as disciples, and it secures our relationship with God. And so my question for us is this, has the resurrection changed everything in your life? Has the resurrection changed everything in your life? Or just what you do on Sundays? Has the resurrection changed everything in your life? Because I think it should. The resurrection should change everything in our life. And may we be a people that it does change everything in our life. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for four different, uh, like at least we have written down, witness accounts of the resurrection. God, my prayer is this. Can you help us right now to believe in the resurrection the way John did in verse 8? That, that we could look at these words almost like the empty grave cloths and believe in the resurrection unlike we ever have, God. God, can we see that the resurrection changes everything? 
that your son was not just a good teacher and not just a miracle worker, but he is the very power of God. He is the very uh, restoration of God that we get to see in front of us. He is God in the flesh. God, you know how you want to work the power of the resurrection and the beauty of the resurrection in us and through us. And you know how you want it to form us. God, my prayer is that you would have mercy on us this morning and you, you would even do that in a big way this morning as we spend time worshiping you. That you would do something in our minds, something in our hearts to be formed by the resurrection in the way that you want us to be formed. And God, if some of us don't believe quite yet the way we were made to, God, would you enable that belief? Would you make our hearts good soil for the gospel, the good news that you have resurrected? Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for the resurrection. We're thankful that you give us the resurrection. Father, thank you for becoming our Father. Holy Spirit, do a work in us this morning. We love you and we need you. Amen.